That's some sensational catch. Absolutely brilliant from Hooper. Was hit back firmly by Maiello. Hammered down the ground. It could fly all the way for a maximum. It's gonna soar into the sky. That's the six they needed. That's 50 for Furbrush. What a knock that is from him. Outstanding striking. And that six brings Guernsey back into the game. Could be a catch. What a catch. One-handed grab. And that's Josh Butler, the captain. Oh my days, we have been treated to some catches in this tournament. Welcome to Under the Covers, Guernsey Cricket's very own podcast. I'm Ben Furbrush, Guernsey Cricket Development Manager, and on this podcast we will be chatting to players old and new, coaches, administrators and other cricketing keen beans along the way. On today's episode of Under the Covers, we catch up with Gary Kirsten, a man that's played 101 tests and 185 ODIs for South Africa. Okay, so Gary Kirsten, welcome to the Guernsey Cricket Podcast and thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Ben. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So yeah, if, if we can sort of go all the way back to early childhood, what are your first memories of, of cricket and were you born into a very sporty family? Yeah, I was. You know, South Africa is a, a place which really um, encourages outdoor living. Um, and um, I grew up in, in a family where kind of cricket in the summer and rugby in the winter was kind of what you did, you know. Um, so, um, yeah, we had four brothers spread over um, two marriages. And um, my, my half-brothers were a little bit older than me, but I ended up playing international cricket with my eldest half-brother, although we were 13-year age gap. Um, but certainly it was, it was just, yeah, you know, sport was just kind of a, almost a priority in our home. And then was it really a massive focus on cricket as well? Yeah, it was. You know, my, my father was um, a first-class cricketer in South Africa um, and then went on um, to be um, the groundsman at Newlands Cricket Stadium for um, eight-odd years. Um, he was an engineer um, by qualification, um, but he, he, was a, he was a cricket nutter. <laughs> and um, so his sons were, were definitely going to play it. And then um, Peter, my eldest half-brother, uh, who actually played five years county cricket at Derbyshire and uh, played for South Africa as well. Um, he kind of led the way, I suppose, and we all followed suit. Yeah, and then through schooling as well, I assume in South Africa, obviously cricket's a massive part of your schooling. Yeah, it is. And, you know, we're probably the one country in the world where schools cricket is is probably more relevant than club cricket. Right. Actually. So, um, um, and that's changed over the years. I mean, um, but schools cricket has always had a very strong base. We've probably got about 30 elite cricket schools in the country where all our pro tier players come from. Um, and they've got very good systems. They've got good coaching structures. And then the, the, the school leagues are, are very strong. Um, and, um, I mean, I just saw a stat. We, we based our facility here as an academy is based at one of the elite schools, Rondewash School in, in Cape Town. And um, I saw a stat the other day that over the last 10 years, they've had 50 matches against overseas schools from the UK, from Australia, I think even from India. And they've won 48 and lost two. And um, I think it's just a, probably an example of the strength of our school system. You know, it, it, really is, um, it really is strong. I think one of the downsides to that is a lot of your very talented schoolboy cricketers, 17, 18-year-olds, then go on to after school to start playing adult cricket. Whereas in Australia and in the UK as well, you'll have a talented 15-year-old playing adult cricket. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of the, 
yeah, I think a lot of the talented school where cricketers kind of take a little bit more time to to get used to adult cricket. Yeah, does that have a knock-on effect then into the South Africa national side as well? So they sort of come through later or? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I'm thinking of an example in my head, a, a youngster who's really starting to make his mark in first-class cricket, but uh, who was a very talented schoolwork cricketer. But it took him about three, four years uh, to break through the adult scene. So he didn't, you know, he didn't go as an 18-year-old, uh, very talented schoolwork cricketer and then go straight into, you know, first-class cricket. It took a while to break through. There are examples uh, maybe an Adam Markram is a good example of, of a very young player who's gone on to have success very quickly. But the majority of the guys normally take about three, four years before they before they kind of get going at first class level. Right. Yeah. Now then, so you were signed by Western Province in 1987. Um, was this a case of Western Province having uh, age group training and stuff you went through first to get into the actual being signed by a, a full class professional? Yeah, Ben, it was a little bit different back then. So, so then we we probably still had a fairly strong club system. So I was I, I was one of the last generation of cricketers where your one of your pathways was through the club system. So we didn't have academies in those days. Right. You know? yeah. It wasn't like you played good cricket at schoolboy level. I mean, I played uh, in 1985. I played for SA Schools. And in 1986, I was playing second team cricket at, at the University of Cape Town. You know, um, so you, so and then you got to, you then I made the first team, did well in the first team, and then I made um, our provincial B team, um, which in those days was first class cricket. Right. Um, and then I made the provincial A team. So it was a, it was a, it was really a, the pathway was through was actually through club cricket, but that's that's been eroded now. That doesn't exist anymore. And then alongside that, was there still South Africa uh, age group, as in like under 19s and under 15s, etc.? Did that still exist? None of that. There was no South Africa under 19s. Right. Um, yeah, you got to remember as well. Then we were in isolation in those years. Yeah. So there was no reason yeah. to have a South Africa under 19 team because they wouldn't play against anyone. So um, yeah. So that that only came that only came around once we got into full democracy in the country, which was from 92 onwards. And then how did you find sort of going in as a youngster into the, like an adult dressing room? Was that tough? It's obviously, yeah. South Africans are known to be pretty, you know, hard-nosed, pretty tough competitors. Yeah, so you, you've got to remember that because our club system way back in the 80s was really strong, um, you know, as an 18-year-old UCT student um, playing against hardened club cricketers, it was, a, it was a baptism of fire, you know, and it was actually very... It was very necessary. Yeah. Um, it made me wake up very quickly if I was going to make it. You know, I signed my first professional contract as a 20-year-old. Um, so I had kind of two years of club cricket that was was properly hard, you know. And uh, um, it was a great awakening for me. And so, so, so to play against hardened club cricketers was very important for my, my development. And then did you sort of find that would obviously set you up better for international cricket when you got to international cricket? Yeah, I think it just gives you, it gave me good grounding. You know, I was a bit of a slow starter with everything. I, I didn't quite fire at first class level in, initially. Um, I got a contract as a 20-year-old playing in, in, in the Western Province B-side. I did quite well in the B-side, got some hundreds in my first two years. And then I got selected for the A-side. But then once you go into, you know, the, the, the main first class structure in South Africa, 
it was incredibly competitive environment because bearing in mind, uh, no one was going anywhere. You know, this was, yeah. this was the pinnacle. We didn't have international cricket. So the level of competition was, in, was incredibly high and very, very competitive. So it took me, I reckon it took me five years to break through first-class cricket in the country where I started to perform very well. I was in and out the team. Um, in fact, it was, an, it was a coaching intervention from Rob, the late Robin Jackman. Right. Um, who was our coach at the time, who said to me one day when I was 12th man in a game for Western Province, he said, um, have you ever considered opening the batting? And, and uh, I've never opened the batting in my life before. And, and, right. and, I, and I said to him, Jack, as I said, I, I don't think I can open the batting now. I'm 22 years old. I've been batting at four and five my whole career. Um, and he said, well, you're not going to make this team consistently unless you consider opening the batting. Um <laughs> That, that obviously me instead because uh, you made your test debut uh, a few years later um, in Australia at the MCG. One sort of, how was that as an experience? The MCG must have been packed full Boxing Day test. Um, and then what are your memories of that day in particular? Extremely intimidating. Um, but it was a great experience. You know, the, the, the first, I, I got selected as a replacement on that tour. And the game before that test match, the first class game before that test match, I had been playing a first class match in South Africa, Western Province versus Griqualand West. And there were um, um, about 10 people in the stadium watching the game over the four days. Right. And then, and then I arrived for my next game of first class cricket, which was an international against Australia at the MCG on Boxing Day in front of 80,000 people. So it was a bit of a it was a bit of a shift, um, very intimidating, um, and yeah, just like a like a wake up call as to what international cricket was about. Did you find also sort of the, the fielding side of it as tough as batting? Obviously, with that crowd there. Yeah, so it was it was kind of a weird one. I'll never forget that because um, I, I said to myself, you know, where would be the best place for me to field? I was never a great slipper. Um, and typically, when you're debuting in, in, in a team, uh, people always say to you, do you want to go short leg? And I actually said, yes, I do. Because I felt if I could be in the middle of the pitch rather than on the boundary ropes getting abused by an Australian <laughs> fan, that wouldn't be a bad thing. So I went to short leg. Um, in, in fact, I think I got two catches at short leg in the game. And I, and I, I was at short leg for the next eight years for some <laughs> Um, so I don't know if it was a good decision or not just being very available to do short leg position (laughs) now that same series uh, in the second test you scored 67 in the first innings and 41 in the second innings Um, this was against the likes of McDermott, McGrath and Warren did you feel sort of added pressure that first series playing against an unbelievable Australian stack yeah, I mean, you know, I think for I think for me, like like any one of us, you want to you want to know that you can make a contribution and make a make a play, you know. And um, uh, in that first Test match, which was my debut, I only batted in one innings and I got sixteen, and that that's not enough to you know to, to tell people that you can play. Um, so that next Test match, that second Test, first of all, was a an amazing Test match because we won the Test match defending one hundred and fifteen in the fourth innings. Mm. Um, and uh, I got some runs and made a, made a contribution. I didn't bat very well, but it was a contribution that was 
enough for me to say, okay, I can play at this level. Um, and and, and it, so it was a very important test match for me. Yeah, and then in, in that third test match, uh, you got your first ever test wicket, uh, removing Mark Taylor, something that you're probably not renowned for. Uh, but you bowled 23 overs uh, with eight maidens and, and took one for 62, which is actually pretty uh, pretty impressive. Uh, uh-huh. Were you more of like a, a batting all-rounder then, or was it very much part-time bowling? Part-time bowling. I mean, it was, the only reason why they considered me as, a, as an all-rounder is, is um, I had bowled a bit of off-spin in, in the first-class setup in South Africa that season. And one match, I ended up getting six for 50 or something in a match. And, and uh, they, they all thought, oh, this guy can bowl off spin. But I couldn't really. I was a very average spinner. I only got two wickets in, in 100, 101 test matches. So there's nothing to write home about there, I can assure you. Yeah, and then on that same tour, you also made your ODI debut. Um, how did you find uh, changing the formats? Because actually, when I look back at the scorecards... It wasn't like it is now where you have a block of test matches, a block of ODIs. It was all mixed in together, uh, which must be really, really hard. Yeah, I enjoyed the one days actually because I wasn't regarded as a one-day player. I was like a stodgy opening batsman left-hander. Um, but I, I worked out um, one or two things in my game that really helped me um, in my one-day format. Um, I had a couple of release uh, scoring opportunities that I developed into my game, which um, actually... Uh, changed my game in a big way. And I actually broke through in one-day cricket before Test cricket, I felt. Um, um, so one-day cricket was very dear to me. You know, it was like, it was like an important part of my, my makeup as a, as a player. So the transition between the two, I had very different game plans for both games. I mean, I was always aware of my strike rate um, in ODI cricket. And as an opening batsman, you know, I had to be kind of scoring roundabout at a 70% strike rate. Um, you'd have the odd day where you would go quicker than that, but generally the team was happy if I was going at about 70%. So I had a lot of success in one-day career, um, mainly because I think I just had um, real role clarity. You know, um, I played a very specific role in the South African ODI team, so I enjoyed it. And it's crazy to think, you know, that back then scoring at sort of 70, striking at 70 was, was acceptable. Now it's sort of... Over 100 is <laughs> acceptable. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? But, uh, you know, we were looking, you know, anything over 250 was a, was a good score, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, these days, as we know, you probably got to add 50 runs onto that 300s par now. Yeah. So scoring at 70, if you're going to use up um, a fair amount of the balls, you know, you, you're not going to get to 300. So that was what the requirements of the day. Yeah. No. Would it be as, were wickets as, Better now, or is it just just the way the players play now is different? Uh, no, I think the wickets were the same. It's just a it's a it's a different game now. I mean, T Twenty cricket has, I, I think, really shifted shifted the landscape in a big way. Um, you know, when we talk about players playing three sixty degree cricket, it, it, we, we didn't play three sixty degree cricket. You very seldom saw a player lap lap the ball like they do now. Get the ball behind the wicket. Um, everything was up up the ground and the other big shift um, is you know the, the the low full toss was regarded as a gun delivery at the death um, yeah. in in my day now it goes for six because the bats are so much bigger and the guys are used to hitting low full tosses for six so that's been a big shift as well 
And then you mentioned there that you sort of made your breakthrough in, in uh, ODIs first. Uh, so in 1994, in the World Series against Australia, uh, you scored your maiden uh, uh, ODI 100, um, carrying your bat for an unbeaten 112, uh, defeating Australia by 28 runs. Um, but you also opened the batting that day, as you mentioned, with, with your brother Peter. Um, mm -hmm. That must have been a pretty surreal experience, walking out to bat in, a, in an ODI with your brother. But Yeah, it was, a, it was an amazing uh, series for both of us. You know, we played pretty well together. I mean, he was 13 years older than me. I was 26, he was 39 at the time. Right. Yeah. And um, that, that particular final was, uh, yeah, was, a, was a highlight for me because it was one-day cricket, first of all. So I was always a bit vulnerable around one-day cricket. Um, but it was the MCG. It was 80,000 people. And, uh, you know, I played really well. It was one of my, my best knocks um, that I played. Um, Peter got 30 in that game. So I think we put on 60 or 70 for the first wicket. Um, and again, I, you know, I think we ended up getting 230 or 240, which was a, which was a winning score. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to Under the Covers, Guernsey's very own cricket podcast. We'll be back after the short break. Bold him. Beautiful bit of bowling from William Peatfield. The stump comes crashing out the ground and that's a big wicket here in Guernsey versus Denmark at the KG5. That's the first wicket. Letizier is the one who strikes, he gives it a big celebration, he writes it up in a book, he notes it down and sends them off. You can add Manpreet Singh to that list. That's the breakthrough Letizier needed, that's the breakthrough Guernsey needed, and that's the breakthrough that Mark Ladder to my left wants, a big smile on his face. And a wonderful shot there. Cover drive for four. Stokes already finding the boundary twice in this game. Now, then you followed that up with an impressive, your impressive start there with uh, a maiden test century as well. Uh, this time against England in, in Joburg uh, with 110 in the first innings. Um, that must have been amazing. You know, everyone dreams about making a, a, test, de a test debut and also a test 100. Yeah, it took me, to, uh, you know, 28 innings to get my first test 100. So there was a lot of speculation. I was very really, uh, nervous around that, to be honest with you, because... You know, it's the it's the holy grail for Test batsmen. You know, you've got to, you're only going to be recognised if you can bang out some hundreds. And um, you know, the monkey was on my back a little bit, and I couldn't get get across the line. I've been kind of staying in the team on the back of 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, but yeah. no real big score. Um, the other caveat to that was um, we were playing against England, and um, Devon Malcolm was in the team, and he had uh, the series before he had absolutely blitzed us at the Oval, getting nine wickets. Um, and he was terrifying, to be honest. He, he bowled well. So that was a, that was a big one to, to kind of um, do well um, against, against England, but then also against him in the attack. Yeah. Um, so it was a, yeah, it was a, a, that first one was, is always a big one for any batsman, I suppose. Yeah, and then it sort of kicked on your career from, from there on in. Um, you toured India the following year, um, joined an elite club by scoring a century in each of the innings uh, where you scored 102 and 133. Um, how different were those sorts of innings in Indian conditions? Obviously, it's, it's turning wickets and a few more spinners, most likely. Yeah, I think it's wonderful playing in different conditions. And um, I'm, I'm a big fan of not neutralising wickets around the world because uh, every condition has something different to offer. You, know, you look at England, it's, the ball swings a lot um, and seams as 
well. Um, South Africa, you get a lot of uneven bounce and a bit of seam. In Australia, you get massive bounce. In India, you get big turn, you know. So I think you've got to be able to play around the world. I mean, those are that, that is those are the requirements. So um, I always one of the things I always had as an opening batsman is I wanted to score 100 in both innings. Um, so that happened in India, Calcutta, um, <clears throat> and um, yeah, it was great to be able to go there. There was also big crowds there. Um, um, I actually, funny enough, felt that there was a bit of an advantage being an opening batsman <clears throat> in in Indian conditions, right? Um, because you generally got the new ball, which is what you wanted, because the wickets were pretty flat and they weren't turning hugely yet. So if you if you won the toss, batted first, and you were the opening batsman, I was always I was always happy with that. By the time the spinners came on, I already had thirty, you know, and um, yeah, you could get yourself set and get going. How physically demanding did you find that back to back hundreds? Obviously, is in those conditions it must be really tough. Yeah, you know, I always prided myself in in a, in a general degree of fitness. Um, I always believed that test match batting was was an endurance sport. Um, so I did a lot of endurance training. I I, I loved my um, long distance running. Uh, so I would do, you know, three four runs every week of my, of my playing career. You know, seven to eight to ten k runs, bang it out for forty fifty minutes and just run. You know. Um, I think, and that base fitness, I think, really helped me manage the different conditions that we're playing in, even hot conditions. I'd go for, you know, if I was in India, I'd go for runs in the heat as well, just to just to acclimatise as much as I could. And then alongside that, was, was gym work a big thing when you played or was that more coming sort of in the in the more recent times? Yeah, it's obviously ramped up a little bit with uh, S&Cs and, you know, um, you know, I think there's there's definitely a place for it in the modern game. I think there's a massive physical demand on three formats now. And, um, you know, I think teams are finding their competitive, a lot of their competitive advantages on players with power, players that have big arms from the boundaries to throw, players that have great speed on the field. So there is a bigger physical demand on the game than there was in the 90s. Um, I wouldn't say I was a... Um, a, a big gym guy, but I definitely, um, you know, probably twice a week I was in the gym, you know, and I was doing doing the basics. Um, I wasn't going for massive strength. I was just going for a uh, strong body. Right, yeah. And then in the third test of uh, England, again, tour to South Africa, um, you made your higher test, highest test score. So a very gritty 275 following on um, in the second inning, in the, your second innings. Uh, you batted for 14 hours spread across three days of the test match. Um, <laughs> how did you f- like find the sort of, obviously that was as much mental as it is physical, that mental toughness to sort of stay switched on? Yeah, that was an interesting test match. I mean, I've had some really poor form in the series. In fact, I, I was down to my last innings. I would never have played the next test had I not got some runs. It was the third test I'd got. No runs in the first and the second test matches. No runs in the first innings of the third test. And we followed on. Um, the game was, we were in, we were in massive trouble. Um, and I was nowhere. I mean, I, I walked out to bat on that third morning, just thinking like, I, can, I can't even play this game anymore, you know. Um, so I was ready to pack up <laughs> my test career. But, um, yeah, I think I, I, it, it was a great lesson for me because 
I took away the expectation of scoring runs and just said, you know, if this is my last test innings, I'm just going to bat and not worry about how many runs I get. And it really helped me, you know, it kind of made me separate the that performance anxiety, separate the result with just going to bat. And I just stuck in the space, just batting, you know, and, um, um, you know, once you, once you hit one boundary and you start to get things going, I got lucky. I remember I nicked a few through third, fourth slip and, you know, suddenly things started to happen. And, and then once I got a bit of confidence in my game, I just wasn't going to let go. I was going to be like a dog with a bone. I said to myself, this is it. I'm going to, I'm going to save this test match and I'm going to bat the rest of the test match. I really consciously put that in my head. Um, I always wanted to um, have a significant save as one of my, my goals, individual goals as a player for my team, you know, just have a, you know, because I was that type of a player, um, I felt that I owed the team one big test match save in a really difficult situation. Um, yeah, so I just kept batting and I didn't stop. I just said, I'm going to bat. And by the end, in fact, I got out um, – bowled by Mark Butcher, off-spinner. I tried try to sweep him and he bowled around, around my legs. I was so exhausted by then. I'd, I'd lost 5Ks in that, in that, right. in that wow. innings alone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then following on from that, you, you also made your highest ODI score. Um, it came against UAE in the 1996 World Cup uh, with an impressive 188 not out. Um, this seemed to be looking at the scorecard of more attacking innings. Was that just a case of being in sort of like the right frame of mind for that day? Yeah, it was a listen. It was a it was an opening World Cup game. Um, UAE are not are not we're not strong opposition. To be honest with you, once I got to about a, to a hundred, I just slogged. You know, <laughs> I mean, I didn't I didn't have in my mind you know that I was that I wanted to get two hundred or anything like that. I just slogged. I just tried to hit every ball as hard as I could, and uh, I couldn't get out. <laughs> couldn't you get out? You know, so it was it was one of those games where it was just. The conditions were perfect. The bowling was not strong. Um, and I just was able to not get up and <laughs> skip that. That's the only way that I can illustrate that innings, to be honest. <laughs> but, I, mean, I mean, if we were, we were going to speak about your playing career, we'd be here for, forever. So um, yeah. sort of a final little bit before we move into your coaching. Um, you retired at the age of 37 uh, and you still scored 76 in your final test. Um, was it a, a decision that you just thought, you know, now's the time? Or did, obviously you could still play because you're still scoring 76 runs in your, in your final test. Um, yeah. Was it a physical thing? Sorry, say again. Was it, was it a physical thing or was it, was it more of a, uh, you know, mental thing that you were just sort of spent after playing for so many years at the top? Yeah, I mean, I'd... Uh, um, I wanted to retire from uh, test cricket um, at about my 75th test match, but uh, a couple of the players in the team, because we were new into international cricket and none, there was no, no South African that had played 100 tests, they just said to me, please, can't you just stay and play 100 tests because it's important for, for the legacy of the game in South Africa. So I said, cool, I would. So I, I, I played to 100 tests, but I was ready to retire well before then. But ironically, the last year of my test cricket was my best year. I averaged 70 in the year. Right. And um, I've got 400s and, you know, it's amazing how it works. You, you kind of put in your mind mentally, that's it, and you want to retire, and then you end up having your best year, as you, as you mentioned. Um, so, yeah, for me, it was always in my head that I was, I was going to retire at 100 tests. And um, 
Um, the fact that I had a good year was not going to change my decision. So that, that was it for me. I never played another competitive game of cricket after that test match. That was it. I retired right. from all cricket. Right. Yeah. And then you, how did you sort of switch off? So just the final bits of your, your playing career. How, how did you switch off, you know, during Long, long England? Like at the non-strikers method that you used? Yeah, I think I think for for any batsman, you've got to get into what they what they call performance flow, you know. And um, I think in the performance flow, there's always a lot of chaos. It's it's never it's never a, an easy situation. I'm not a I'm not a big big believer in talking about the zone because yeah. you know the the zone I think only happened to me maybe two of my 170 test innings is where I really felt like you know I was unbeatable. But I think performance flow you. Um, is an interesting space because you you're in and out of it, you know. And sometimes it's chaotic, other times it's really cool. Um, but my switch off really was everything other than um, when the bowler was running up to bowl. Right. Um, and it, and it, if you had to, if you had to put the seconds into that, it's 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 probably only about ten percent of your entire innings. Right. Yeah. And the rest of the time I was switched off completely, you know, whether it was. Um, you know, whether I was at the non-strikers where you don't really have to concentrate that hard other than, you know, whether whether we need to <clears throat> take a run or not, um, whether it was, um, you know, waiting for the, bat- for the bowler to go back to his mark. I really enjoyed that time, just when the, the ball had been finished and the bowler was walking back, it was just time to do a quick reflection, where are you, and then you get ready again, so... I focused a lot on, on switch-off time, but I believed it was part of the bigger performance flow. Yeah, and then, and then alongside that, did you change anything technically when you face seamers as opposed to spinners? Um, yeah, I mean, I built my career on a fairly big trigger, um, and that trigger movement where I move my, feet, my back foot across the stumps to middle and off, and my front foot then set onto about middle, was really... I built that that movement after my school career because it helped me get onto the back foot better, which I was really struggling with. Um, yeah. um, and then, um, and I and I kept that trigger throughout my career. Um, the spinners are still triggered, but it was very small, much smaller movement. The trigger movement for me was a rhythm movement. I, I wanted to be on the move, um, obviously with my head as still as possible, but yeah. I wanted to be kind of on the move when the ball was being released. I just felt um, standing still was really difficult for me because I, I felt I couldn't move very quickly on yeah. releasing the ball, you know. Um, so I've had many debates with lots of international batsmen around that now, you know. Um, and I definitely see two, uh, two styles. I see the rhythm movement with a lot of international players and then I see a really early trigger to get into position with a lot of international players as well. Right. Yeah. And then did you have any superstitions before you used to go out to bat? No, I try to stay away from that as much as, as much as I could. Um, um, listen, I mean, before going out to bat was for me, it, it's a hectic time because you're so focused on the performance and like you, you so badly want the results. Um, I used to get this kid really tight in my tummy and, um, you know, like you, like you're about to go into an exam. Yeah. Um, but I had no specific kind of uh, rituals that I went through, no. I just went really quiet, actually, in the chain room. I, I think the players that I played with began to realise, you know, 
with about 20 minutes left to go, 15 minutes, don't go talk to Gary. He's not, he's not, he's not going <laughs> to say a word to you. And then with regards to kit, so the final bit, um, you look like you had sort of two main bats of sponsors through your time. Um, were you quite particular on the kit you had or was it very much just pick up a bat and if it felt right, you sort of went with it? Yeah, no, I was, I was not a good example of uh, a sponsorship material. I would go wherever the wherever it flowed i used i used county at the end of my career for the last three or four years and i had a good relationship with them um listen for me it was just great to receive the kit and um i i was a i was a i was a bit loose around bats you know i just used wherever i could find a, a nice bat i would even i would even negotiate using um other players bats and taking their stickers off and putting my stickers on you know yeah um, use any bat that felt like a good bat, um, and and if I, if if I, if one of the other guys didn't want the bat, I'd say please let me use that bat, and I'd just take it and start using it. Thank you for listening to the Guernsey Cricket Podcast. Remember to hit the subscribe button and keep listening.